0: Hello, y'all! I am coming out of hiding to read y'all a very special thing. This is the first draft of my story, The Secret History of Dolores. So, without further ado, let's get going. Go to Wattpad here. One moment. (laughs) Chapter 1. The Urians of Delon, Adon, and Emi. These are the words of the collector of Canis, who spent thirty-seven years and a day traveling the world Dolores, collecting stories of the great war between the good citizens of this world and the ancient entity known as the enemy. This she did so that the great and noble deeds of humankind would not be lost to time and forgotten. She writes, According to the Dolores, best informed in history, the Urians began the quarrel. They came over the northern mountains in such great numbers that many suppose that they were invaders, but many modern sources suggest that they entered the wide plateau virtually unopposed. A few others suggest that the Urians overtook a technologically advanced civilization and erased them from history by destroying the keys to deciphering their written language and monuments, but these sources are few and far between, and I personally do not believe them. There is evidence that a civilization existed before the arrival of the Uryans. They had advanced sanitation systems and a written language. Even the most uneducated archaeologist will agree with me that this old civilization vanished long before the Aryans arrived, leaving behind only ruins. In any case, the Aryans largely ignored this older civilization, bringing their language and culture over the northern mountains and into the wide plateau. This language is no longer in existence today, and no living languages are descended from it. All we now know about their culture comes from archaeology and translations of translations of their literature, for all of the original documents have been lost for centuries. The greatest of the Urians, Don of the Burka clan, brought about the Urian Golden Age when she conquered all of the neighboring tribes and claimed the continent for her empire. She named the continent Delon after her patron goddess, and it still bears this name today. In a bold move, Adon took a wife from Cheli, the chief enemy tribe of the Urians. She was beautiful, ambitious, and intelligent. Adon saw this from the start and was determined to marry her. At the point where they met, Adon was only beginning her conquest, and Emi, as her wife was called, was the most desirable woman on the continent. Men from everywhere came to court Emi, for her father, Ostia, was a very wealthy high nobleman, and they wished to gain his favor, marry his daughter, and thereby be wealthy for life. Ostia was in for the shock of his life when Adon's honor guard found their way to his doorstep in a rainstorm, carrying Adon, badly wounded and dying. They asked for his daughter, whom they heard was the best healer in the land. He recognized that Adon was his enemy, but he'd also been having dreams that his daughter would marry the conqueror of Cheli, and that their kingdom would benefit from it. His dreams were never wrong, so he agreed to take her in. Adon was sick with a high fever for many days. Emi took care of her. She worried for seven days and seven nights as her patient slipped in and out of consciousness, doing all she could to heal her. On the eighth day, Adon began to feel better. Emi came into Adon's room with breakfast to find Adon trying to sit up. Emi wept from relief. Adon was confused as to where she was and why there was a fair skinned woman weeping in front of her. Adon introduced herself in Urien, and to her surprise, Emi replied in the same language. Adon quickly learned where she was, who Emi was, and that her loyal honor guard hadn't left the house while she recovered. Adon asked bluntly why they hadn't killed her. Emi explained that her father was a man of visions, and that he must have seen something for not even her many suitors were allowed in the house while Adon healed. Adon would never know what Ostia saw three days later. Adon asked Ostia for Emi's hand in marriage, for she knew that that was the only way she'd ever see Emi again. She timidly approached Ostia and asked for permission to marry his daughter. He laughed and wept. His her reply was, "If she agrees, yes." Emi did agree, but Adon had to go to war and finish her campaign again before they could get married. Adon made Emi a promise that she would return in six months with the whole continent under her control. True to her word, she arrived at Emi's doorstep at sunset on the final day of the six months of her absence. Of the six month of her absence, having finally brought Chelli under her rule peacefully the day before. One of Emi's suitors, a man named Arius, refused to go quietly. He believed he was entitled to Emi's hand because he was the most handsome man in his tiny fishing village on the northeast coast. He convinced the rest of the suitors to attack Adon the day before their wedding ceremony. Emi learned of the plot and tried to warn Adon, but it was too late. The suitors had already surrounded Adon, and she was outnumbered. There were thirteen suitors, and only one Adon. As she watched her fiancé fight off the suitors, something inside her snapped, and she began to sap the life forces of all the men attacking Adon. They all fell to the floor, one by one, leaving Arius as the only suitor left alive. He pleaded for mercy, but Emi was not kind to those who were cruel to her or to those she cared about. She snapped her fingers, and he fell to the ground, lifeless. Adon respected Emi even more now that she knew about her power. There were many times during her long reign that she could have asked Emi to use her gift, but she never did. Emi decided to do that all on her own, and her army of immortals became one of the reasons that the Urian Empire became feared for centuries. Over time, Emi came to the conclusion that her gift was useful and helpful. She used it to reanimate fallen soldiers to create an unstoppable, unfeeling force that could crush a city in a matter of hours. Emi became known to most of the Urian conquered territories as the Pale Horsewoman. She struck terror into the hearts of all who saw her with the exception of Adon, who loved her fiercely. Chapter 2: The Urians of Adon. Wars, revolutions, and a pit of snakes. In the 23rd year of the reign of Adon and Emi, there came a great wave after an earthquake that destroyed the trading port of Shar. This port was vital to the Urian economy. Many people were quick to blame the gods, but even more people blamed the Urians for not providing Shar with the defenses necessary to withstand the great wave. Most of the people that blamed the Urians were not Urians themselves, but rather vengeful conquered peoples that desired the downfall of the Uryan Empire. The local governors, who were loyal to their empresses, tried to quash the rebels. They were unsuccessful. The rebels shod- shattered a fully trained force of 10,000 strong at the Battle of Mela in central Delan. This incurred Emi's wrath, and she sent a squadron of immortals to crush the new rebellion. They were met with fierce resistance and ended up getting choked off and slaughtered at the Battle of Kyfer Pass under mysterious circumstances. The stories say that the brave King Idis sacrificed himself to slay the remainder of the undead army. Nobody knows for sure what the truth is or what the sacrifice was. People say that they've hiked through Kyfer Pass and heard mysterious whispers and seen visions of a massive explosion and riding on the mountainside, but as it is in ancient urian it is indecipherable wars and rumors of wars rocked ulon for the next decade some deity was aiding the rebels it seemed a deity that was angry with the urians the urians had disrespected him he told his priests he was the one true deity the father of all and the urians had spat in his face by worshipping other gods before him He would visit the Urians with swift vengeance if they didn't turn their hearts to him. The Urians did not take kindly to being told to abandon their long-standing traditions. They stood firm in their beliefs. Things only changed when a prophet came from the east, a man of visions, speaking for this new deity. His name was Len. He arrived in Shar shortly before the Great Wave destroyed the city and was driven out for his controversial views and thoughts on fate and the soul. He dressed in public and wore beggars' clothes. He gained popularity among the rebels and the oppressed, a growing majority in Shar, and he led them from the city a few days before the earthquake and wave, thereby swearing them from the destruction of the city. Following the fall of Shar, he was hailed as a prophet. He began to travel around Delon, preaching his message to ever growing crowds of people. His message had the opposite effect of what he intended. It lit a fire in the hearts of the people, one that could only be put out by ruthless bloodshed. He did everything he could to stop it, but once the revolutions began, there was no way to undo what he had started. While he had told the truth, the oppressed majority took it to heart a little too well and his patron deity favored them in their conquest. Modern sources call him Benve, a new Delaunay word meaning vengeance. We now believe that he did not have a proper name when he was worshipped in ancient times and was instead referred to as Majesty. It is impossible to truly discern whether or not Benve was good or evil, for there were both good and evil things that came from his period of worship. The revolutions brought about much loss of life, but they also taught the Uryans a thing or two about administration, things that have found their way into modern law through word of mouth and tradition. The Uryan dynasty managed to survive the rebellions and Emi's final act before she died, was to condense the scattered imperial laws into a concise, orderly text, gaining, gathering inspiration from Benve's words, the Delon cult, and the traditions of the entire continent. Adon died shortly before Emi, and they left behind no clear heir. The heir that they chose was but ten years old at the time, and was frail, sickly, and easily disposed of. Rumor has it that the captain of the guard got rid of the child and set himself up as emperor, but he, too, disappeared. The throne fell to the most unlikely of candidates, Adon's favorite cupbearer, who was but nineteen at the time. Fain Adair was a gentle soul who had fallen upon hard times as a child. His mother and father died when he was six years old in a house fire, and he was taken in by a beautiful and kind enchantress, who found him crying by the side of the road, half-starved. He would spend the next six years learning the art of white, or good, magic. When he was twelve, he was sent to the imperial imperial court to get a proper education. There, he learned the arts of swordplay and metalwork. He infused the weapons he crafted with his power and would not let a person leave with a piece that he had crafted unless it fit them perfectly. The other boys were jealous of his gifts and the favor he earned from the palace blacksmiths, and they conspired to get rid of him. He snuck, they snuck up upon him in the dead of night, catching him off guard. They threw him in a pit full of snakes and left him for dead. It was the next day that Fane got his name that he is now known by... For Fane means snake in New Delani. Adan came walking near the pit of snakes the next day because she had heard the other boys snickering about the boy they had dumped in the pit the night before. She went to see if what they were talking about was true and to give give the boy a proper burial if need be. Nobody deserved to die alone in a pit of snakes. But to her surprise, she found Fane very much alive, sleeping peacefully, "'surrounded by snakes that were keeping watch over him "'in case of further intruders. "'Adon called to the boy, and the snakes began to charge her. Fan woke with a start and rebuked the snakes who listened to him. "'Adon was so impressed that she made him chief cup-bearer, "'and to the end of his days he returned to the pit of snakes "'to feed them every morning before dawn. "'After the incident with the snake pit, And this is chapter three, the Aryans of Delon, Fane. After the incident with the snake pit, Fane Adair became the talk of the palace. Boss George, as the chief palace bully was called, was baffled. That runt was the first one to survive the snake pit. Everyone else they'd tossed in there had died within minutes. How did he survive, of all people? Why did he return to the snake pit every day? That boy must truly be magical and magic was something that could not be tolerated. The bullies didn't see Fane around much anymore now that he was no longer a blacksmith in training. Fane's new role as chief cupbearer made George angrier. Teenagers came from all over Delon to try out for the role, and the runt impressed the empress just by surviving a pit of snakes for one night? Impossible! He must have charmed her too, somehow. George promised himself that he would get to the bottom of this. In the meantime, the Empress Emi was also impressed with Fane. He was talented with magic, and that was admirable. She saw his potential, especially because he had started his training so young and offered to train him to use life and death to achieve his goals. He politely refused, saying that he should not be trusted with that kind of power. He knew he would not use it wisely. This was true. He had frequent dreams that he decimated entire armies with the nod of his head, that he could raise a hand to the sky and summon the full power of the heavens. He knew that he could have that kind of power if he wanted it. He knew better than to want it. If he called that power into his life, there would be no getting rid of it. Once someone chooses magic, his adopted mother once told him, that magic honors that choice and is with them for life. Many people in that day and age viewed magic as a plaything, something that they could control, and they paid for it dearly. In his book of magic, he wrote, Be careful how you use magic. It is never something that is in your control. You are simply a vessel. You can only channel it. It is, has been, and will eternally be bigger than you. Choose your magic the same way you would choose your dearest friend, wisely and cautiously what do you hope to accomplish who will benefit who will suffer does one outweigh the other in your mind ask yourself why do not shy away from profound questions for questioning is the only way you will come to know yourself and know your true power Emi respected his decision and praised the boy's wisdom. She knew that someday he would be more powerful than her. She also knew that, he was not, that she was not to be afraid. While serving as cupbearer, he learned the importance of paying attention. Adon trusted many, and, few of, and a few of the people she trusted were not worthy of that trust. As he served at meals, he heard many things. Though he was young, he knew more about the world than many of his peers, and indeed more than many of the noblemen. He knew who was trustworthy and who was not. In his years in his position, he learned of several plots to take Adon's life. He relayed the information to Emi, and they worked together to eliminate the threats. A time came when Emi and Adon returned the favor. Fain went to visit the blacksmith's shop where he used to work one fine spring day. Boss George and his cronies praised him excessively, and Fane knew that something was wrong. He informed Emmy of his concerns, and Emy listened. That night, the Pale Empress herself paid the bullies a visit. The lone survivor of the visit was a small boy, known only as String. He had no idea why he had been spared. He later asked what Fane, why Emmy had passed him over. She knew your heart, Fane replied. You don't have any malice there. Fain took string under his wing and helped him heal from his time under Boss George. He even taught string magic. When the time came to help Emi condense the laws of the land, Fain helped by researching the things that Emi needed him to. In the process, he learned many things about the world outside the palace walls. All of this helped him in his next stage of life. Shortly after all of the laws were compiled, both empresses died, leaving behind a power struggle. In order to keep Delon from falling into ruin, he devised a contest to determine the empire's next ruler, one he had no intention of winning. The city of Yel, in the far west of Delon, had a problem with a wild horse. No one knew how to get him to calm down. The governor of Yel agreed to support whomever could soothe the horse as ruler. Yel's support was crucial to the Urian Empire, for it was the second largest city in Delon. Fane knew next to nothing about horses, but he suggested that as the contest that would determine the future ruler of the Urian Empire. Upon arriving in Eiel, Fane noticed some important things about the horse in question. First, the horse was enormous. Second, though he was large, he was afraid of his own shadow. Fane kept that knowledge to himself so that when the time came for the contest, he might have some idea of how to win. It seemed like the whole city gathered to see the high and mighty imperial men try and do anything with the horse. Fane's contenders failed one by one to calm the huge creature. Then it was Fane's turn. He approached the horse slowly and calmly spoke to him as he turned him away from his shadow. The horse began to settle. The citizens were astounded. Why hadn't they thought of that? After a time of stunned silence, the city knelt before Fane and declared him emperor. To be continued. One sec. Come on. Alright, and this next one is going to be published today. Where is my thingy? And this next, uh, the next episode is going to be published today and keep yourselves posted for more updates on my story, The Secret History of Dolores. Thank you so much for listening. This is Persephone Jam signing off.